Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. You were probably expecting me to say Matthew 7. And uh, you say, what in the world's gone wrong? Well, I think you'll see the connection here. But let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Sometimes the Lord, by the way, uh, children, you may leave. Yeah, some of you are about to forget that. If you're seeking to go to children's church, junior church, you may do so right now. Thank you. Sometimes the Lord uh, won't let me do what I want to do. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> and uh, he and I go back and forth for a little while. I don't know why I do that, because he always wins. And uh, I wanted to get into the passage that's very powerful and precious to me in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I, wanted, I really wanted to go there today. And we will eventually, God willing, but the Lord laid something else on my heart that goes along with what I preached last week. Um, judging by some responses I've received to the subject I dealt with last Sunday, the fact that from within the church in the last days there will be false teachers that will arise, I mean from our own ranks. Um, I've had some interaction with some people, some newer members, some new members, and uh, that's a blessing to have these new members. Praise God for it. But um, some of them may not be as familiar with these and related dangers as I assume. And so uh, if what I say today is old to you, please indulge me a little, please cut me some slack because there are some people that need this and hopefully uh, it'll do us good by way of remembrance as well. Last Sunday we looked at what Jesus had to say about false prophets there in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. We also looked at what Peter said by inspiration in his second epistle, chapter 2. But we didn't look at what Paul had to say. And Paul had to say a lot. And so we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to park here just a little bit. My prayer is that the candlestick of Friendship Baptist Church will keep burning brightly until Jesus comes. And he may come before I step down as pastor. But even if that happens, I believe he'll let me know from heaven, uh, if, if the Lord takes me on home, uh, I believe he'll let me know from heaven that uh, this church is still standing true for him. But that's only going to happen if you take to heart the truth I am preaching today. First or Second Timothy 3, verse 1. This know also, Paul said to his protege, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And please notice verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. He didn't say tolerate them, be kind to them, don't judge them. He said, from such, turn away. 
For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou, Timothy, in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And we'll save the remaining three verses for a future message, God willing. In our last study of, on the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, we focused on Jesus' warning about false teachers who arise from within the church. And he didn't mince words when he just came around and said, up front, beware of them. It's one thing to be aware. It's another thing to beware. And it's not just false prophets that we need to be aware of. It's not just false prophets that we must be able to detect and then eject. Paul makes it clear to Timothy in his last preserved letter, the second epistle to Timothy, that the local church is to protect itself from other dangerous influences that arise from within. We are the guardian of the truth, the undergirding, the pillar and undergirding of the truth. I've entitled this message, A Self-Cleaning Church. That's an unusual title, I know. I think you'll see what I mean as we get into it. How many of you do have a self-cleaning oven at home? All right. Well, I asked the men that last night, and I said, how many of you don't know? And most of them raised their hands. But ladies, I hope you know whether your oven is self-cleaning. Like a self-cleaning oven, the church is to maintain purity and practice and doctrine. It's to keep itself clean. That involves at times, in the extreme cases, church discipline. And please don't get alarmed. We're not about to exercise church discipline today. I'm hoping this message will prevent that. But it's amazing. Paul told the Corinthians, in his first epistle, that we as believers are going to judge angels, rule angels someday. And then he appealed to them on that basis to say, can't you rule yourselves? Can't you judge yourselves? Can't you keep the church clean? I know it's not January yet. That's the time of the year when we usually talk about taking inventory, at least businesses do. But I hope we'll take some inventory this morning as a church to see how well we're doing by Paul's instructions and his criteria here that he gives to his uh, young pastor, though he may not have been pastoring at Ephesus at this time, and his protege, Timothy. How should a self-cleaning church 
operate. Well, we'll talk about a couple of things this morning. First of all, a self-cleaning church quarantines itself. And I emphasize those words in verse 5 after he gave that long list, which we'll talk about, list of characteristics of people that arise within the church. He says, from such turn away. I'm sure you know, if you know anything about a self-cleaning oven, that uh, when it is in operation, it is locked. You used to have to just, you know, pull the lever from one side to the other. I don't think you even have to do that now. It gets so hot as all the crud is being baked off the burners that it poses a real danger to someone that gets too close or baked off the racks. And so in a, in a real sense, it quarantines itself. And so it is with a self-cleaning church that's operating properly. It quarantines itself from all that is close by. We should avoid, we should stay away from the deadly stuff, the polluted atmosphere that is often found in certain circles. We should have a healthy fear of contamination. That's implied here, a fear of contamination. Now from what or whom is Timothy to turn away? From whom is he to, who is he to avoid? Obviously Paul is talking about people here. He's not talking about disasters or plagues. He's talking about people because he says in verse 2, he starts by saying, for men, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And the deeper we get into the last days, the worse things are going to get with people. We are in, I believe, the very last of those last days. The apostasy is full-blown. I cannot believe what has happened in the last five years. People that I thought better of that have just left the faith, deconverted. And we used to buy their books and recommend them. Perilous times have come. They're only going to get worse. And the word perilous there means fierce and furious. There will be a, an increase in violence in these last days between Christ's first and second comings. Paul says in verse 13, we've read that far, but evil men and seducers, the word seducer, maybe it's translated this way in your version, is imposters. The word seducers means imposters. They shall wax worse and worse. He's talking about spiritual seducers, not the moral ones. And he's saying, Timothy, be on guard, avoid, separate from. And then he goes on to talk about two categories of people. First of all, be on guard against, avoid, separate from phony believers. The people described in these verses that we read are really not irreligious they're not pagan. They're not outside the visible church. In fact, they feel very comfortable inside the church. They say they are religious, but as far as true religion is concerned, they lie. They're as phony as a $3 bill. 
And Paul uses 17 descriptive terms to identify them. I can only barely touch on them. Seventeen's uh, a lot of points in a message. Some of you are groaning perhaps already. Number one, he says there in verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Amazingly, this is just one word in the Greek, philautos. It's the only place it's used in the New Testament. It literally means fond of themselves, or we would say narcissistic. Remember narcissist? The one who fell in love with his own reflection, the mythological figure. And it conjures up the image of people who kiss themselves. Now, I know that's hard to do, but some people try. Brethren, we are living in a me-first, narcissistic age, and it's not frowned upon. It's celebrated. May God help us to be on guard. In our day, it's popular, and many people are bought into the self-esteem cult. The old writers, the old uh, hymn writers used to use such terminology as vile wretches and worms referring to themselves. That's not kosher anymore. We don't do that. We're more sophisticated than that. So we just say, for sinners such as I. I'm glad our hymn book hasn't changed those expressions. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Then the word is covetous. The Greek word means literally fond of silver, a money lover. The love of money is the root of every evil. The love of money is the first thing that flows from self-love. And a man who loves himself will seek to indulge himself. Materialism will grip his heart. The almighty dollar becomes his God. It is this insatiable love of money that has given rise to the prosperity gospel in this present hour that we've heard so much about, and most of you are straight on that and warned about that. I praise the Lord for that. The idea perpetrated and promoted is that Jesus wants you healthy and wealthy. Probably most of the well-known TV preachers, not just on TV, but even on the popular websites, are proponents of this. And they're laughing all the way to the bank at the gullibility of the flock they are fleecing. And as I said last week, if Jesus named names and Peter named names and John named names and Paul named names, I'm going to name names. I'm talking about the Joel Osteens and the Joyce Myers. And while Beth Moore herself may not have spoken the same heresy, as Joyce Meyer, she has not repudiated her connection with her. Yeah, it's quiet. The Todd Whites, the Paula Whites, they're not related. Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Juanita Bynum, Robert Tilton, Eddie Long, T.D. Jakes, closer, not very far away, and in Charlotte, Stephen Furtick, Kenneth Hagen, and the granddaddy, the worst one of all, Kenneth Copeland. 
I said it. Many of these live notoriously lavish lifestyles, openly flaunting their, they call it God-given wealth, Self-love psychology and the prosperity gospel go hand in hand. Beware. Beware the covetous. And then there's the word boasters. The Greek means empty pretenders. Remember my late uh, missionary father-in-law saying it stuck with me. Self-brag is half scandal. Self-brag is half scandal. A man who loves himself is going to brag on himself. A man who really loves Jesus is going to loathe himself and fall at his feet. Have you noticed that the false prophets, like the ones I've named and others, but I named quite a few of them, when they give an illustration that involves themselves, they're usually the heroes in it. They're usually the heroes in their own stories. It's really funny when they get touched by their own generosity and magnanimity. Sometimes they get choked up talking about themselves. They exaggerate their own value and accomplishments. Boasters. Empty pretenders. And then it sounds like a, just a, a synonym for the next one, proud, but not exactly. It's a twin sin to boasting. This means arrogant, haughty. It's the inner desire to exalt oneself while Boasting is the outward manifestation. When someone loves himself, he will worship himself. And the result is pride. The devil's signature sins leading to his fall were pride and rebellion. Is it any wonder when his brood resembles him in that? Isn't it amazing how some people can seem to be so humble? But in their heart of hearts, they have contempt for others. It, it just shows. Jesus talked about that Pharisee that went up, went up to the temple to pray with the publican. Usually we use that story, I do most of the time, to, to give the gospel. It's a tremendous way to give the gospel. I only had 20 minutes with a man who was dying over the telephone lately. And praise the Lord, he eventually did get saved before he died. That's what I went to immediately. I had 22 minutes with this man, and I went to the story of the Pharisee and the publican. It just zeroes in on how God can justify us by faith. But sometimes we overlook some of the other things. The, Jesus, the, that parable is introduced in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, by saying, This parable spake Jesus unto them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but don't stop, and despised others. Those two go together. Disobedient to parents, also there in verse 2. There are those who, uh, the same wording is found in Romans 1.30. It means unpersuadable, who cannot be reasoned with to conform. I know we kind of laugh at this, but really it's a sad commentary on even a lot of Christian parents. I don't like to be at the store checkouts with kids. And see how parents have to bribe them to behave. Please stop embarrassing me. I'll take you to Six Flags, Disney, Paris, Rome, Cairo, wherever you want to go. 
Isn't it amazing how kids are getting smarter and parents are getting dumber? Disobedient to parents, unthankful. Self-love is ungrateful because it takes the credit for itself. Selfish people never have enough. And so they never stop to be thankful. And they tend to be uh, self-sufficient. America prides itself on its rugged individualism. We actually think that's a feather in our cap. That is not a virtue. That is a serious flaw. None of us are self-made men. And when we come to Thanksgiving time, we will invariably quote Psalm 100, which says in verse 3, and I hope we think about it when we say it, it is He, it is God that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are not self-made men. Unthankful, unholy, the Greek word is anasius, which literally means indecent. Speaking of scandal, the flaunting of common decency. It's giving free rein to unbridled lusts. It's decadence on steroids. Quite often I hear people say, and to, to a degree I understand it, when they refer to scandalous things going on, especially with leaders in certain churches and ministries and movements, I'll invariably hear this. Yeah, well, Satan has a target on their back, and they just fell. Now, Satan does have a target on the backs of ministry leaders, no doubt about it. But in many cases, folks, they didn't just fall. It eventually comes out that over a period of time, they indulge the basest of passions. It's doubtful that they ever knew the Lord. And what they did was not just criminal. It was anasias indecent, scandalous. Verse 3 picks up, says, without natural affection. It's just one word in the Greek, astorgos. Same word is Paul used in Romans 1 verse 31 to describe the heathen, the nations, those without God. It refers to the family circle, the love of nature and nurture. This is demonic, vile, sordid, wretched, inhumane. I mean, when men sink this low, they, they just are rotten to the core. That's why the Menendez brothers back in 1989, Lyle and Eric could murder their parents and then go watch a James Bond movie. That's why Andrea Yates could drown her five little children in a bathtub in Houston in 2001. That's why Arthur Morgan III could toss his two-year-old daughter into a New Jersey creek to drown her still strapped to her car seat. And to make sure that she didn't come back up, he tied a tire jack to it. This is how... Alex Murdoch could murder his wife and 22-year-old son, at least he's been convicted for it, after stealing over a million dollars from his law firm. This is why there's so much abuse and perversion within the homes, and yet some of these people come to church and smile. Truce breakers, 
That means irreconcilable. These people are implacable. They're not easy to be entreated. They're intransigent. They're unyielding. It's either my way or the highway. You know anybody like that? They're usually very bitter, full of hate, spite, revenge. False accusers. That means slanderers. That's the way it's translated elsewhere in the New Testament. The Greek is diabolos. If you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's Holy War, the devil is designated such, diabolos. Such are of their father the devil, and so they take on his character as the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says of Satan in Revelation 12, verse 10. People in love with themselves will try to tear others down. We've talked about that already. Can this be found in the church? I wish I would, could be able to say no, but it is. Could I give you some advice? Avoid the malicious gossips. And I praise God that we don't have near as much gossip friendship as I've seen in other churches. It thrills my heart when something scandalous does come out, not because of that, but when something does come out and people will mention it to somebody else and ask, did you know that? And they'll say, no, I didn't. And I want to rejoice. Avoid the malicious gossips. Avoid the character assassinators. Oh, we have all kinds of pious disguises. We'll call it a prayer request. But really, it's gossip. Please be careful. Not just ladies, but all of us. Sometimes you may have to stop somebody before they finish. And say, my ears are not garbage cans. Before you go any further, do you expect me to do something about what you're saying? Do I have a scriptural obligation to this person? If not, don't say it. Don't tell me. And especially the Bible says, against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. I've been reading, have not been reading anybody's email. Nobody's been gossiping to me. But please don't lightly lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed and repeat mere hearsay and have roast preacher for lunch on Sunday. That's a serious thing. Incontinent. That's not referring to a physical condition. It means without self-control. It's an adjective only used here in the New Testament. It's the person who says, I'll do my own thing, and then usually adds, after all, I'm not hurting anybody. We're fooling ourselves if we think that because sin always hurts others. No man lives unto himself, no man dies unto himself. We always hurt others when we sin. Listen to God's Word, Proverbs 25, verse 28, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. That means defenseless, vulnerable to every ploy of the devil, easy prey, we would say, for him, incontinent. Fierce is the next adjective. It means brutal, even to the point of being savage, like a wild beast. The Greek means literally not tame, not tame. 
Sometimes people in the church become ruthless, merciless, cruel. They get so angry. They turn into savage beasts. They'll even threaten and blackmail. I've seen some, praise God, not here, but I've seen it in other places, that actually have said, if you do or don't do such and such, I'll destroy you. Preachers have said that. Despisers of those that are good, that means haters of good. They only love themselves, and they're no good, so they hate everything that is good. Their values are all twisted. Like the apostate Jews described in Isaiah 5, verse 20. We need to go back and reread that chapter. The Bible says they call evil good and good evil. That's being done all around us. It's creeping into the church. And then verse 4, the word traitors. That word means betrayers. It's actually so translated in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. In the bold sermon of Stephen, the early martyr of the church. This is the quality of being treacherous. These are the kind of people you can't trust. They will burn you if you put your trust in them. Be like a, a thorn going up into your hand when you lean on it. Lying and deceit run in their blood. Could I just switch to the positive side of that and say, be loyal. Don't be treacherous. You don't have to agree with someone to be loyal. Avoid those who who are disloyal, who are treacherous, who are always suspicious, or you don't have to be suspicious. Don't avoid the extreme of being suspicious and paranoid. And then the next uh, characteristic is a word we don't use in this form, heady. We don't use that word. It means reckless or rash. We might probably say headstrong. The Greek comes from two words that mean falling forward. You can see the idea of rushing forward without having your brain in gear. It describes a person who just runs right over people to achieve his goals. I mean, you better get out of the way. Heady. High-minded. That means conceited, puffed up. It's the Greek for smoke. It describes people who are, who are just blowing smoke because they're stuck on themselves. And sometimes that smoke gets in their eyes. And they're blinded by their own conceit. And so they treat others scornfully. Lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. This doesn't imply that we cannot have pleasure in God. Oh, no, please don't think that for a moment. I love what David said in Psalm 16, verse 11, which we often quote on Easter Sunday. But he says, referring to God, at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Contrasted with what the writer of the Hebrews says about the pleasures of sin being only for a season. But Paul is talking about those seeking pleasure outside of God. The Greek here is fond of pleasure and it combines two roots. And the second root is from the word from which we get hedonist or hedonism, the love of pleasure, the worship of pleasure. When one loves self and money and praise or pleasure, 
Let's face it, he doesn't love God. When the love of pleasure grips your heart, there's no room for God. It's just the playboy philosophy. What's the greatest commandment of all? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. So doesn't it stand to reason that if that's the greatest command of all, the greatest sin of all would be to break that command, to fail to love the Lord our God. Where does that love come from? Romans 5 verse 5, hope makes not ashamed, hope doesn't disappoint, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by who, class? Who? The Holy Ghost. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Unless you have the Holy Spirit, you can't love God. If any man have not the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure you're saved. You're not sure if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. You have a conscience, you know that. You feel guilty when you sin, at least certain sins. May I just stop and say the only way that you can love God and not be His enemy, not be in opposition to Him, is to receive the Holy Spirit. You don't receive the Holy Spirit unless you receive Christ. As many as received Him, to them God gives the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Many of you have done that, praise the Lord. Some have not. Some of you under the sound of my voice today may think you're saved. You've grown up in church. You know the hymns. You can say the Ten Commandments. You can say the Golden Rule. But you've never had a heart change. Never been born again. And it all comes out sometimes. You don't really love God. When he's put up against the world, the world wins every time. You see how dangerous these people are? They're in the church. I'm not saying that you should look out of the corner of your eye at the person next to you and say, is he a heretic? Is he a phony believer? No, I'm not saying that. But we sure need to be aware. This is rampant in the professing church in Christendom. No wonder we don't have revival. We're more concerned about filling our churches than purifying our churches. These people, according to verse 5, have a form of godliness, Paul said. But it's just an empty shell. It's just a shell. The kernel's not there. And so we tolerate them. We listen to them. Often we're intrigued by them. We buy their books, we watch their videos, they get rave reviews because they sure know how to use a Madison Avenue approach. Sometimes we fall for their humanistic reasoning, reasoning, it's so convincing. They know how to hold our attention. They'll have us laughing one minute and crying another. I mean, we're in the palm of their hand. They use Bible vocabulary, they use spiritual terminology, but they deny the power thereof. 
And if you get infatuated with them, you may well end up not loving God at all either. Beloved, don't be deceived by these characteristics. Avoid these kind of people. And verse 5, when it says, avoid them, Paul says to Timothy, avoid them. The Greek is, is continuous. Keep on avoiding. And it's the word from which we get trepidation. It speaks of fear. We should avoid them with horror. We should be afraid lest lightning would zap us if we got too close to them. Why? They have a form but not the substance. They deny the power. They don't have the Holy Spirit. The life of God is not in them. They may seem spiritual. They may talk spiritual. They may have a huge following. But they're hypocrites. They don't love God for who He is. They only love Him for what they can get out of Him. And you take that away and they'll do what Job's wife tried to get him to do, curse God. They love themselves. They promote themselves. They have their own agenda. They're good Pharisees. It's all about the form. It's all about looking good on the outside, not the substance. Because if we really knew what we were like on the inside, we'd say with Wesley and Watts and others, what a wretch. May God deliver us from such. But not only may He deliver us from phony believers, may He deliver us from, secondly, as Paul talks about here, corrupt leaders. Look at verse 8. I won't be able to go far with this. I'm aware of the lateness of the hour. Verse 8, now as Janus and Jambres withstood or opposed Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. Phony believers are usually following corrupt leaders, and they're counterfeiters. You say, Pastor, who are Janus and Jambres? I don't recall reading those words in the Old Testament, and you are very correct, very astute. But we do know who they were. They're the two Egyptian mag magicians who opposed Moses when he came in before Pharaoh and said, let my people go and work some miracles. They're called wise men and sorcerers if, in, in the King James Version of the Old Testament. Although their names are not found in the Old Testament, Jewish tradition has named these two for many years. And Paul picked up on that. Janus and Jambres were probably the leaders of the magicians in Egypt. Just like we are familiar with the Penn and Teller team, it was the J&J &J Act back then. I won't have you turn there, but the story is given in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, where Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh for the first time and says, let my people go. Aaron throws down his rod, and it becomes a serpent. But then Pharaoh called Janus and Jambres, or his ilk, the wise men and the sorcerers, and they did that with their enchantments, their secret arts. They cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But the interesting thing was that even then, though they were able to imitate 
what um, Aaron's, uh, Aaron did. Uh, even then, Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Do you remember that? Their power was thus demonstrated to be inferior to Jehovah's power. And they were able to imitate the first three of the ten miracles, the plagues brought upon Egypt, the, the miracles that Moses and Aaron did. But then they couldn't bring forth lice from the earth. And even they were forced to acknowledge this is the finger of God. There's always a place where charlatans cannot go further. Satan's favorite method in opposing the truth is to discredit true preachers. Why did Pharaoh harden his heart against God and against his servants when they demanded of him to let my people go? It's because Janus and Jambres and the other magicians could copy the miracles. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's an imitator. And his purpose is to discredit those who are giving out the truth. Just like Janus and Jambres discredited Moses before Pharaoh. His favorite method for seeking, for opposing the truth is to discredit true preachers. Then there's this statement, which I have to explain. Apposition is the worst opposition. You say, preacher, what in the world do you mean by apposition? Well, those of you who understand and remember your Greek grammar, a noun in apposition is one that is put beside, side by side with another noun. A noun of apposition. Satan is too smart to try an all-out frontal attack on Jesus Christ. Satan is not likely to speak through someone and come to us and say, Jesus Christ is a liar and a fake, I hate him, and I, I'm the really true God. You're probably not going to encounter anybody like that. What does Satan do? He just puts his henchmen right beside the true. That's what Janus and Jambres did with Moses. They resisted. They opposed the truth. The name Janus means he who seduces. Jambres means he who makes rebellion. Interesting, isn't it? You put those two together and you see that the one who deceives is actually opposing. And the worst opposition is apposition. It's putting it side by side. We have the idea that the Antichrist who will arise at some point, we have the idea that he's antichrist because he's against Christ. Well, he is against Christ, and he'll eventually prove that. But listen, anti means instead of Christ. He's put alongside of Christ. Now, how does Satan oppose the truth? By counterfeiting it. And he will prey on people's preoccupation with the sensational and the miraculous. Like Janice and Jam- Jambres, he'll do lying wonders. I think it's not far-fetched to call this the placebo effect. Do you know what that is? The placebo effect happens every day in medicine. Brother Gary would understand this with clinical trials and stuff that he's been involved in. A person will take medicine expecting that it will help, but if he takes a placebo, there's no therapeutic effect whatsoever connected with what he's taking for this particular diagnosed conditions. 
placebos are used in clinical trials all the time. Probably the most common designation for a placebo is the sugar pill that somebody takes instead of the experimental medication in a clinical trial. Clearly, well, 30% of people who take the sugar pill, I don't know if you know this, but this is the statistic I was able to come up with. 30% of people that get the sugar pill instead of the actual experimental medication claim to be helped. They think they're better. They feel better. 30% is a lot of people. Clearly, the placebo evokes a psychological response. Just the act of taking them gives people a, a, a sense of relief or of well-being they didn't have before. And so people come to Benny Hinn's healing crusades who are expecting to be healed. And isn't it significant that he never heals anything that's an outward deformity? It's always something you can't see. Lower back pain, migraine headaches, He's a showman. He's a deceiver. He speaks lies, and he performs lies. You say, well, well, I didn't know he spoke lies. Let me just give you one. He's on record as saying this more than once. Benny Hinn, Christians are little messiahs and little gods. That's not just a lie. That's the original whopper. Well, let me just wrap it up by saying keeping the church clean is not easy or pleasant. Sometimes people are offended at me more when I try to just deal with their sin than any other time. Running the self-cleaning oven at your house is not all that pleasant. At least for me it's not. You can ask my wife. When she cleans the oven... I just can't stand that smell. It's just, I mean, and I can tolerate a lot of things. I will invent a reason to leave if I didn't already have one. But I am so glad she does because the things she bakes, cooks after that, taste and smell so good. Self-cleaning oven, while it's an operation, isn't all that great. When I have to bring messages like this, these aren't my favorite messages. I'd rather get on to something else. But I would not be a faithful shepherd if I did not preach them from time to time. And if the candlestick of Friendship Baptist Church that has been burning brightly for 58 years is to continue to burn until Jesus comes and not have Ichabod written over the door. Can I say this, and I hope you'll remember it even after I'm no longer pastor here. Keep yourselves in the love of God and keep yourselves clean. Don't let phony believers in. One of the Baptist distinctives is a regenerate church membership is supposed to be. Do you know when somebody comes forward and just says, I want to join this church, and you say, are you saved? And they say, yeah. We don't just say, okay, you're You're in. We do like John the Baptist, people want to be baptized. We say, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. How has your life been changed? Tell me your testimony. Those who know you best, what do they say about you? 
Make sure that you do your due diligence and inspect the fruit of any candidate for leadership at this church. Well, now we know who we must avoid and who we must exclude if we would keep the church clean. As we look forward to the next message, how do we know who we can trust? You know, we can just be totally disillusioned with everybody. Well, we'll get into that answer that Paul gives in the rest of the chapter. I'll just give you a little sneak preview with two verses here, okay? Look at verse 10. He's telling Timothy, his protege, son in the faith, young pastor, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, Paul's doctrine, his teaching, my, my manner of life. Paul was an open book. My purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my charity, my patience. And then he goes and lists some of the suffering that he's undergone for the Lord Jesus. Then look at verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That's so critical. Make sure you know who you're sitting under. Some people sit under a pastor for 20 years and then are shocked at what comes out about him. There's a church out in the Midwest that was giving a pastor um, money every month to, to give to needy families as he saw fit. As a witness, only problem was that needy families weren't getting it. The local prostitutes were. They'd been sitting for 20 years under the preaching of a man who was a phony. Here's what I'll leave with you. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Follow the man who's following Christ. Follow the man who's following Christ. He said, be you followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Shall we pray? Father, would you give us discernment? Would you give us courage that we need to be a self-cleaning church? May we speak the truth in love. May we wash one another's feet. Oh, God, help us not to be gullible. Help us not to be naive. On the other hand, don't let us degenerate into being paranoid, negative. Thank you for the warnings as well as the precepts of Scripture. Having been forewarned, may we be forearmed. And, oh, God, I pray, keep Friendship Baptist Church pure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.